Good day to all our listeners out there and welcome back to another episode of the In Search podcast. In today's episode, we tackle the question of job precarity and speak with sociologist Xavier Saint-Denis about shifts in employment stability patterns in Canada, the UK and Germany. Before we get started, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Now that we've dispensed with all the preamble, let's jump right in. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to In Search. I'm really excited today because uh, our format's a little different than we've uh, previously had. Uh, so we have, first and foremost, my esteemed colleague, Xavier Saint-Denis. Ça va, Xavier? Oui, ça va très bien. Happy to be here. So happy to have you. And we also have Chris here. He's joining us also um, just because he's a little bit more well-versed in this field. Chris, how you doing? Pretty good. It's uh, It's been a very busy year so far. Not that it's been a long one, uh, but, uh, you know, just packing it away at work, you know, keeping busy. All right. So why don't we just launch into it then? Uh, Xavier, let's start with the first question. Um, what is your research about? What is the nutshell kind of pitch of your research? Yeah. So when I started my PhD, I was really interested in something uh, called non-standard work. Um, so non-standard work is, um, is a term that we use to just identify any employment contract that is not permanent. So anybody that signs a contract or that doesn't sign a contract but is an employment, in an employment relationship where um, they don't have an expectation of permanent employment, so uh, with no end date, uh, except for maybe their retirement, um, is more of a temporary contract. And so those temporary contracts are also often uh, covered by slightly different labor standards. So uh, the, 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 the social protection uh, of those uh, who work under those contracts are slightly different. So think about um, a casual worker for a given organization. They'll probably not uh, have the same company benefits, but also uh, they don't have the same employment protection uh, levels uh, compared to a permanent employee. And if you think also about self-employed workers who work as a consultant or as a contractor, they have a completely different legal status. So they might they they often are not even considered employees, um, even if sometimes they do they they fill roles that are pretty similar to other people who are employees. Um, so I started from there <clears throat> because it's a huge topic in sociology, and it's associated with the term uh, precarious work. Uh, precarious meaning uh, a lack of security. Uh, and that has many different meanings, but just l let's leave it at that for now. Um, and the idea is that you have more and more of those non-standard contracts, more of, more of those situations where workers don't hold a permanent uh, full-time regular employment contract. And this has several implications. I hinted at the different uh, uh, labor standards that cover them. Uh, differences in labor standards, difference in different forms of social protections. So why, what I ended up really investigating is more broadly, when you look at those non-standard forms of employment, they are part of a broader set of changes that affect the world of work. And more specifically, uh, they're part of a broader set of changes that affect people's careers. When I started my PhD, what I wanted to know or what I really wanted to tackle is um, how like the worker firm relationship or how, how the employment relationship transformed over the last couple of decades uh, in different OECD countries. And that's a big question that has many different components. So there is this idea that there's a traditional career model 
where um, a young worker starts working for a large organization that is fairly bureaucratic. And we've all seen that in movies. They enter. It may be pretty monotonous and routine work, um, but it's a stable job uh, that offers pretty clear paths for upward mobility within the company. And uh, the stereotype goes uh, that uh, if you start working in such a company, you'll probably retire uh, by leaving that company, uh, that same company. Uh, so basically, it's the mailroom to boardroom kind of career path. Uh, and the common agreement seems to have been that this was the career path uh, that, that most people follow, or followed or that, that was the most desirable in what we call the post-war labor market. So the 30 years that followed World War II, when those large bureaucratic firms or those large manufacturing firms uh, uh, were among the most important players in the economy. I'm just going to interject here for a second. So when you're talking about this post-world economy, are you focusing on particular regions? Um, more generally, before we get in, even into your dissertation more specifically, um, is this kind of career trajectory um, of, you know, starting in your, let's say, 30s at a conservative estimate to, let's say, 65, is that something that, that you're focusing on in a particular region, in the Western world, in the Northern world? So this career model uh, is, is probably most applicable to OECD countries, uh, but I guess more specifically to Canada, the US, Japan, and Western Europe. So, so we're talking about years when uh, the USSR and uh, other socialist uh, countries were still you know, socialists. So they had a very different economy, uh, a very different uh, labor market, if you can call it a uh, market. So we're really talking about that specific subset of countries like France, the UK, Germany, West Germany, actually, um, the US, Canada, and Japan to a large extent. Okay, great. Thanks. And so research has focused for quite a bit of time about how we've shifted away from that traditional career model. And the reason is that around the 1980s, a lot of transformation or a lot of changes kind of hit Western Europe and North America kind of at the same time. And uh, the idea here is that the large bureaucratic firms that offered you know, stable jobs uh, to their workers had to change the way they operate and accommodate for the need for greater flexibility. And so one reason you can think about is one characteristic of those large firms in many cases is that there were large conglomerates that didn't experience a lot of competition and they also operated at, at a time when the rate of technological change was fairly slow. So one reason why many of these firms were able to offer such a high level of job security to their employees is that they offered a lot of training to the employees uh, and training that would keep its value over time. So the skills that young entry-level workers would develop would probably use, be useful for uh, a large number of years. And now we know that in the, in the 1980s, like many things happened, but two important things happened. One of them is uh, an increased level of competition, uh, both in, internally uh, among um, companies in the same countries, but also internationally. Uh, in the US, one of those competitive shocks that is often identified is the entry of uh, Japanese cars on the uh, US uh, consumer market. And Japanese companies, Japanese automotive companies were highly competitive and uh, they had a different way to organize work. And that higher level of competition pushed U.S. companies to also seek greater flexibility. Uh, for example, because uh, Japanese car companies 
were able to field uh, much more frequently a new model. Uh, and so they had a production, uh, a pace of production of new model that was higher than their US counterparts. Another thing that happened is that the rate of te technological change increased. So companies who were offering stable jobs to their employees and training them, uh, developing basically in-house uh, the, the skills that they needed among their employees, uh, were faced with the fact that the skills that they developed among their employees through in-house training were uh, becoming obsolete faster and faster. And so the attitude towards training and skill acquisition changed uh, and it became more and more uh, beneficial to try and obtain those skills on the external market by hiring rather than by training your own employees. So these are two examples of, of transformations that occurred that uh, made many large firms rethink uh, the way they organized work and rethink the benefit of offering job security to their employees. There's also a political transformation that occurred in several countries. Uh, it's often associated with the word uh, neoliberalism and with people like uh, Reagan and Thatcher as, uh, as political leaders. Um, but you know, it's a bit more, it's a bit broader than that. So this new set of political ideas focused on decreasing the level of regulation, including in the, in the world of work, and among other things that included fighting unions who often compel, let's say, employers to offer greater levels of job security. So unionized workplaces often are workplaces where there's a greater level of job security, but also in various European countries focused on decreasing the level of employment protection offered by uh, the law and by different standards. So with all those changes, what we're expecting to see is a transformation of what is a typical career trajectory? What is the typical career model? So, so basically, we're expecting to see uh, workers hold less and less stable careers. So what I, want, what I wanted to ask is, do we actually observe that in countries where we're expecting to see it? And the reason why I was asking that is because in many countries, uh, research that looked at the data, uh, and that's the case for Canada, for example. In Canada, if you, asked, if you ask many people familiar with this issue, they will tell you that job stability, so the stability of jobs that people currently hold, is similar to uh, the stability of jobs uh, in the 1970s or 1980s. Whereas uh, a lot of research has focused on the transformations that I just uh, described, and they're expecting a much greater level of insecurity that should translate in a much greater level of instability in people's career. So I was trying to focus on um, that kind of contradiction in expectations in terms of what careers should look like today compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago, and what empirical studies have found when they looked at data on how stable careers are. Great. Um, so I'm just going to recap what you said and correct me if I'm wrong. So basically what you're looking at is first, um, thank you for that overview. That was really helpful. So you're looking, you're basically looking at the set of transformations that have happened in the post-world period um, in the last 30 or 40 years. And, and some of the examples that you brought up was the rate of technological changes, the pace of production, um, the rise of neoliberalism that brought with it all of these uh, regulations, these uh, impetuses for self-sufficiency, these decrease of unions, things like that. And so Basically, what you're asking is, given these social transformations, have jobs become less stable? And what I'm hearing you say is that the common consensus is that jobs um, 
are stable. They're just as stable as they were 40 years ago. But research is showing us something different. Research is telling us that jobs actually um, have become more unstable. Is that correct? Yeah, so, so that's basically the, the, the puzzle, is that it's actually a huge field of the literature in economics and sociology um, trying to measure changes in job stability. And in many countries, for example, in the U.S., uh, but even more so in Canada, there, there's no clear results. Uh, there's still a lot of contradiction about what has happened. So on the one hand, you focus on changes in standards and employer practices, in management uh, philosophies. So a bunch of kind of formal changes that would lead you to expect less stability. But looking at the data, it, it is not immediately obvious. So the goal was to kind of dig a bit more in the data, try to understand why some studies find that jobs are still pretty stable why they might find that that's the case. So, so really, really try to identify better what's been happening. And so for that, I'm building on a few um, existing approaches. And um, one of them is that um, it's been identified in, in, in many countries where women's labor force participation has increased over the past 40 years. That's an important transformation that is not necessarily related to the transformations that I referred to. So I guess those set of transformations, I'll refer to them as uh, flexibilization. So the increase in women's uh, labor force participation is not directly related to flexibilization. And it's also likely to have an impact on the stability in the career of women. And how so? Um, basically, as women participate more and more to, in the labor market, but also in countries like Canada, where they have access to protected uh, family leaves, they're more likely after uh, becoming mothers to uh, hold to the job that they held before becoming mothers. Whereas in many cases in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in the post-war labor market, women who would become mother would leave their job and leave the labor market altogether to um, inactivity. So not looking for a job and not being employed. So we know that that changed. So we know that women, especially mothers, are more likely to participate in the labor market and are more likely to hold a job. Um, and we also have evidence that, uh, as that happened, uh, women who become mothers are more likely to hold on to their jobs. So that is kind of the insight be behind the dissertation is, yes, there has been an increase in flexible employment, but we've also seen many other changes that are related to job stability, that are likely to have an impact on the stability of the jobs people hold, but that are not directly related to flexibilization. So the goal was to kind of isolate the effect of each of these transformations to really try to get to what part of the trend in job stability is related to flexibilization and what part of the trend is related to other transformations. I have a question as it pertains to one of those factors, the transformations in the economy, especially where it pertains to flexibilization, is one of those factors that's considered in your research, the transformation from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. Yeah, so the shift to a service economy is definitely a big, um, an important trend that's closely related to flexibilization. So I investigate that in part of my dissertation. One interesting element is that it's a closely related trend where a shift to a service economy may be more related to a change in the composition of employers. Uh, so uh, what kind of jobs are available? So it's not a trend that you want to discount completely, but it's different from a change in the practices of existing employers. So it's not a trend 
uh, that I consider similarly to, for example, the increase in the attachment of mothers to the labor market. So it shouldn't be completely discounted. Yeah, so it's still part of the road towards more flexible employment. Great. Okay, let's dissect the dissertation. So you've given us the general overview, you've given us the background, you've given us the puzzle. Let's dissect your dissertation then. So you have three chapters. Now, is your dissertation a manuscript or is it standalone articles? Yeah, so it's built on uh, three uh, standalone empirical chapters. Uh, so each of them tackle a slightly different uh, question and focus on the different uh, case study. Uh, and then, uh, of course, there's the, the introduction and the conclusion that uh, wrap everything together. Great. Um, maybe we could do, so maybe you could give us a brief kind of one sentence overview of the three uh, standalone articles, and then we could go into detail about every single one. Yeah. So um, the, the, the first, the first of the, the, the three papers uh, focuses more specifically on Canada. And uh, as I said, this is one of the, one of the countries for which the debate about whether uh, or disconnect between the flexible employment uh, literature and the empirical work on job stability uh, is the strongest. So uh, that's really the paper where I, I focused the most on distinguishing the trend in job stability that may be associated with flexibilization from change in job stability that may be associated with other factors, other uh, parallel trends uh, that are not closely related to flexibilization. So in the second chapter, the insight was that the changes that, I, that, that, that I'm talking about happened in many different OECD countries. And there's a certain diversity in terms of how flexibilization took place across those countries, because those countries have different institutions, so different laws, uh, different uh, collective bargaining uh, regimes, and different family policies as well. So, uh, so that's important for the trend for women that I already referred to. Uh, so in, this, in, that, in, in that second chapter, the goal was to compare Germany and the UK. Uh, which are two fairly different countries that are often uh, identified as the, 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 the best example for two contrasting models uh, of market economies. Uh, and I wanted to know whether uh, the shift towards greater instability first happened in both countries, and second, whether it happened, uh, it followed similar patterns or not. And then in a third chapter, I focus a bit on change over time, but the main, the main puzzle I focus on, or the main motivation behind the paper is that um, a lot of the literature that I referred to, and that is probably the impression you got, ha have the message that most careers in the post-war labor market uh, were fairly secure and were likely to have been fairly stable, and that the large bureaucratic firms who were offering lifetime employment, uh, there may have been a lot of them, and so m it's possible that most workers held lifetime jobs. And some people will think that way. They will refer to, they will refer to the post-war labor market thinking, oh, that's a time when most people would work for a single employer, they would be, they would be loyal to that employer, and uh, most people will have a single job. But there are, there's another part of the literature, including the literature dating back to those days, uh, so sociologists from the 50s, 60s, 70s, who, who noted, okay, we have a lot of bureaucratic, large bureaucratic firms who uh, offer a, a high level of job security, but... In the overall economy, it represents a pretty small share of all jobs. If you think of, for example, the construction industry, which has always been fairly big, or at least a non-negligible industry, most workers would move from project to project, and uh, they didn't have the same type of career pattern uh, or career trajectory than uh, a manufacturing worker who works for a steel plant had. So 
that always was a reality. So what happens is that in the more recent literature that focuses on change in job stability, there's a focus on whether jobs have become less stable, but often taking as a starting point uh, this idea that large firms offering lifetime employment were really important and that we're kind of shifting away from that. So many, many articles on that topic will say, is this the end of lifetime jobs? Are we shifting away from a job for life model? What I wanted to ask is, how many workers actually held lifetime jobs? And I wanted to define this in a pretty narrow way because I didn't want to look only at change in job stability by looking at a change in the average number of years uh, somebody has been with their current employer. That's one way to define job stability. You ask people, you know, how long have you been with your current employer? It doesn't exactly tell you how many people so far have stayed with the employer their whole career. So you need a bit of a more precise measure of that. So the goal was to develop a measure that would allow me to say what share of all workers have stayed by the time that they came close to retirement had stayed for their, with their employer for their whole career. In order to kind of avoid any overstatements about how important lifetime jobs used to be and then offer better insights about what's the nature of the change. Is it a shift away from lifetime jobs or is it a different kind of shift? By whole career, do you define that by a, a finite number of years? Because people's careers have different lengths. So, you know, whether that's 25, 35, 45 years, does that bear any difference in, uh, in how you would define that lifetime career? Yeah, so I used two thresholds. So both of them basically, and that's kind of a, a product of the method, but both of them uh, focused on what happens to workers who uh, uh, after, so after they reach 45 years old. And the first threshold was whether uh, workers reached 20 or more years of job tenure duration, so stayed with their employer for at least 20 years continuously, and were still with that employer by the time they reached 45 years old or older. And the other thre uh, threshold was 30 years old, uh, 30 years uh, of, of job tenure duration, I mean. So um, my, my method allows to uh, calculate or estimate the number of workers or the, the proportion of workers in a given birth cohort who uh, reached 20 or 30 years of job tenure duration between age 45 and 65. Uh, so the 30 years uh, threshold is closer to what we may call a lifetime job because um, if by 45 years old you accumulated 30 years of tenure, then it means that you started at 15 with your current employer. And then if you, uh, by 65, you reached 30 years, it still means that you started your, your current job at 35. Uh, so it's anything that so any job that started between some, uh, between 15 and 35, and that was still ongoing by the time people became pretty close to retirement. Uh, so that's my working definition. And then the, the 20 years threshold is still a long-term job, but it's not a lifetime job in a strict sense. Uh, it's often a working definition that's used in the liter literature, but it's a bit less restrictive. So in the paper, I call it uh, long-term jobs, which may or may not be equivalent to lifetime jobs. Okay. And I guess I've given an overview of the three papers now, but I can say in that last paper, what I find, uh, which is fairly interesting, is that uh, only 20% of men and 7% of women who were born in the UK between 1947 and 1952 actually held a lifetime job, uh, lasting for 30 or more years. So it's really a minority of workers uh, who, who actually held those jobs. 
But in contrast, uh, the, the proportion of men and women who held long-term jobs, so 20 or more years of tenure achieved between 45 and 65, you get a much higher number uh, in both cases. So the post-war labor market, or at least that those, those birth cohort faced, offered long-term jobs. But um, it would be an overstatement to suggest that most jobs did last for a lifetime. Most workers likely experienced an interruption at one point or another in, in their career. Now, my method doesn't allow to identify how many jobs workers held uh, in total in, in their career. Other studies have looked at that. Uh, but the real point I wanted to make is it's important to be careful with the statements we make about uh, what careers looked like in that post-war labor market that everybody talks about as a labor market where jobs were fairly stable. Right. And before we go on, a question that really pops into the forefront, does this research differentiate between unskilled work, skilled work, and professional work? Again, there are some methodological issues with the measure, but one thing I was able to do is uh, produce separate results for workers who have a low, medium, or high level of education. And uh, approximately 10% of low-skilled males uh, achieved uh, lifetime uh, employment. Uh, and the proportion climbs to 30% among high skilled so tertiary-educated men. So men with, with a secondary education are kind of in the middle. So um, th there are important differences by skill levels or by level of education. And another important difference is by race. Uh, for women, another interesting difference, and uh, that will allow kind of a, to segue into uh, results for, for the first paper, is that a much smaller proportion of married women achieved life lifetime employment compared to never married women. Uh, so women who had never married by the time they reached uh, 45 years old. And the reason is, and that, 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 that is kind of related to what I was discussing at the beginning uh, in the introduction uh, about the fact that most married women will have children. And in those birth cohorts, so, so women who were born between 1947 and 1952 in the UK, most of those women, or many of those women, a great proportion, would interrupt their career after they had children and leave the employer that they were working for. Um, so, uh, so that's a huge difference that you see among women that you don't see among men. Uh, married and never married men have pretty much the same rate of uh, lifetime employment. Right. All right. Uh, great. So that's a really good overview. So I want to know so much more. Uh, so I want to dissect each of these chapters. So let's go back to chapter one, which focuses on Canada, right? And I know we're going to have a lot of Canadian listeners who are probably really interested in this question, right? Um, so, so tell us about this chapter. Tell us what you found. Yeah, so uh, the chapter started from basically a dissatisfaction with two important articles that were previously published looking at changes in job stability. And it's also related to a lot of the U.S. literature. So in the United States, we observed similar transformations to the transformations that occurred in Canada. So in both of those countries, uh, you have, as I said, a lot of the literature that argues that the stability of jobs hasn't changed much. In Canada, you have even some articles finding an increase in the stability of jobs. So that goes completely against the expectations of the flexible work literature. So as I said, one of the goals was to kind of distinguish between different trends that may have an impact on job stability, but that may or may not be related to flexibilization. In Canada especially, one of the things I already hinted at is the increase in the job stability of women driven by the greater labor force attachment or the greater attachment of mothers to the employers after they become mothers. Another important trend that is observed in parallel uh, to uh, flexibilization is population aging. So that's basically, you know, the baby boom story. 
So if you think about it, older workers are much more likely to have accumulated uh, long tenures. They're much more likely to have worked with their current employer for a long time. Unless there was, there was a situation where everybody by 35 years old would change jobs, then just by the virtue of aging, most people just accumulate tenure. And so when the share of older workers in the economy is greater, you can expect that average job tenure is greater. So the average level of job stability as measured by the duration of your current employment relationship will be greater among older workers. And so when you want to know what the impact of flexibilization may be, it's important to adopt a perspective that allows to look at change over time among similar workers. So one way to do it would be to restrict the analysis to specific age groups. Uh, so break down the results by age. And another way uh, to do this is to use a decomposition analysis. Basically, a decomposition uh, analysis holds stable the characteristics of the workers uh, at the level that they had in the first year of the data, for example. Um, so the data that I used for Canada starts in 1976, goes all the way to 2015. And over that period, the age composition uh, of the workforce changed. The education level changed. So the distribution of educational attainment changed. And the proportion of married versus never married or non-married workers also changed. And so these are all factors that are likely to, to, to affect the level of job stability. We've observed a significant increase in the share of tertiary educated workers, uh, a significant increase in the share of older workers over the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, and a slight decrease in the share of uh, married workers. Once I isolated the trend from the effect of those compositional changes, I was able to find uh, a decrease in job stability among men. Basically, if we, we hold the composition of the workforce constant over time, over the 40 years, we find a uh, decrease in job stability that would not be visible without holding those parameters constant. So what that means is that population aging and the increase in educational attainment uh, have been driving job stability upwards. And uh, once you account for those trends, the net trend shows a decrease in job stability. Another thing I took into account that is quite important is the fluctuation in the unemployment rate. Um, and that's important because if the economy is doing well, what are you more likely to do as a worker? Work. Work, but also... Well, I mean, you're getting more money. You could also change jobs. Exactly. So, so there are more opportunities to get a better job. And you know, if you think of the current context, employers are fighting for talent. Everybody's saying that now. Um, so there may be just more opportunities when the economy is doing well to change jobs. And conversely, when the economy is not doing so well, some people get laid off. But what's surprising is that, or not surprising, but maybe a bit counterintuitive, is that when the economy isn't doing so well, most workers will stay put. They won't take the risk to go on the job market, especially by leaving their, their current employer and taking a chance trying to find another job. They're not going to do that. And they're mo much less likely to just job hop and go for work for another employer because there are much less employment opportunities, uh, job opportunities. Um, so, so it's important to take into account the fluctuation in the unemployment rate or some other uh, indicator of, of economic performance because uh, if 
in the initial years in the sample, so the end of the 1970s, if the, the economy was doing fairly well, a low unemployment rate on average. Um, but then in the final years, uh, think of the most recent recession, uh, the economy wasn't doing so well. The level of job stability may be pushed up in most recent years, so around the recession, uh, because uh, of this dynamic. Uh, so in Canada, uh, my sample goes all the way to 2015, and by 2015, the unemployment rate had decreased quite a bit, uh, and it decreased in years after. Uh, but if you think of uh, the US, who experienced a much uh, stronger recession, in the most recent recession, uh, then that effect may have lingered uh, for longer. And that's actually what some of the research is finding, is that hiring and firings play a huge role uh, in, uh, in most recent years in explaining what the, the trends we're seeing in the US. So that's something I also took into account when I was trying to isolate the trends. And what came out of my data is I was able to obtain estimates of change in job stability that were net of population aging, the increase in educational attainment, fluctuation in, in the unemployment rate. So these are estimates that show the change in job stability that is most likely to be associated with flexibilization, or at least that is net of those other transformations that uh, are likely to have an impact on job stability, but are not related to flexibilization. Uh, so I don't measure directly changes in employer practices. It's not something that, I, that I'm able to measure because in the data that we have access to, there isn't some direct measure of, oh, is your employer uh, using uh, practices such as having a greater share of, the worker, uh, of workers on, a, on temporary contracts, et cetera. Uh, so there's no direct measure of that over the whole period that my data covers. But still, by isolating the trend from, from other, other trends or other factors, um, other drivers, uh, we can get a better idea of what may be the impact of flexibilization. Uh, but it's important not to make an overstatement about my results being purely driven by flexibilization. But at least it, it reconciles the empirical evidence on job stability with the huge literature that exists on flexibilization, the, the increase in job insecurity, et cetera. Uh, so that's, that's, that, that's the main thing that this paper accomplishes. Uh, the one other thing that I want to mention is that for women, uh, we find a trend that is similar to a trend that was already found in the UK and the US, which is an increase in job stability for women. Uh, and so women have, uh, on average, jobs that have a longer duration today in the, in, in the last uh, decade or so than uh, women had in uh, the 1970s and 1980s. Th that, uh, we conclude, is related to the fact that uh, women who become mothers are less likely to uh, leave their jobs after they have children. Okay, great. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun in saying this. Uh, maybe, maybe, and correct me if you know if you want to address this a little bit later in our conversation. But I'm just wondering if you've looked at this literature, your research, or even b started to think about what this means then for the implication of, um, you know, the notion that jobs are now becoming precarious, right? That because of the boom of tech and because of the nature of mobility and, and the increased globalization of the world um, in recent years, jobs are now becoming precarious. What are the implications of your findings here, at least in the Canadian context, for that argument? Yeah, so, so what I find, and that's quite in interesting in terms of timing, is that the decrease in job stability becomes visible starting in the early 1990s. In the private sector, it starts even a bit earlier, so in the 1980s. 
Um, so it corresponds to the timing of the changes that I, I discussed at the beginning about flexibilization. So, so uh, the increased rate of te technological change, uh, international competition, etc. So our evidence is consistent with the timing uh, of the other changes. Uh, now, uh, what does it mean to have greater instability? Uh, I guess that's also what you, you're hinting at. Um, so the measures I'm using, uh, one of them I've been talking about since the beginning is job tenure duration. So basically that's uh, uh, a variable that is uh, using a survey question about how, uh, asking how long have you been working continuously with your current employer? So not job, not position, really employer, right? Uh, so the same firm. Um, so somebody would report no interruption if, even if they had a promotion, for example. Another measure that I'm using is what we call the retention rate, which is slightly different. And it looks at the probability that somebody who's employed at year one on a given year, so let's say this year, uh, so the probability, the probability that, that, that a worker currently employed will still be working for their current employers in one year or in five years or in 10 years. So the retention rate can be a one year, a five year, a 10 year, a 20 year retention rate. That gets to the risk of job loss, but also the probability of voluntary separation. So in, the, in that specific study, so in the, cha in the first chapter, uh, I don't distinguish between voluntary and involuntary separations. Uh, so that's kind of uh, the unanswered question. That was a question that I had as well, is does this study address the desirability of lifetime employment and the change in that over time? Yeah, and so that's a really good question. Um, so when, if we go back to lifetime employment, for example, I think there's general agreement that uh, a stable job with a certain level of job security uh, is desirable uh, because it decreases the risk of income loss. Uh, losing your job, typically, even if there are some income replacement policies such as uh, unemployment benefits or employment insurance in Canada, uh, most people will still experience a drop in their income if they experience non-employment. And, uh, you know, there are certain benefits that are tied to being employed. We can think of you know, employer-provided insurance. But I think most sociologists would agree that um, the large bureaucratic firms that, uh, that offered lifetime employment were, um, were environments that offered uh, very little autonomy to workers. And that gets to another stereotype, uh, which is not the mailroom to boardroom uh, kind, of, um, kind of stereotype, but it's more like the alienation stereotype or the, the, the stereotype around working in a big corporation being very impersonal and also very uh, monotonous. So... Um, Small cog in a big machine. Exactly. Yeah. So basically... Just to come back to the original question, uh, what is the implication of, uh, of the, the transformation we're seeing? Uh, one, um, one perspective to, to, these, to, to, to the transformations that, that I, I identified in, in, in my dissertation is that there's been a shift in the, what's, what is seen as the most desirable career strategy or career model. Uh, the traditional career model being loyalty to uh, given employer and lifetime employment, and the new model being uh, a model called a boundaryless uh, career model, where um, employees see the benefit uh, of uh, changing employers to accumulate different experiences and uh, also adopt a more entrepreneurial attitude to their career. Uh, so 
valuing less uh, being attached to a single employer and valuing more mobility that comes with certain levels of opportunity. And of course, not everybody is able to uh, successfully adopt that strategy. And I'll get to it a bit. I'll, I'll get to a future project that tackles that uh, in a little bit. But one thing that I think my findings uh, point at is it, it's not necessarily only a transformation that occurred among employers seeking more flexibility, but employees may also have reacted to that. Um, if employers are less likely to provide training, as I said, you know, with, change in te- with the rate of the technological change increasing, employers are less and less likely to provide training to their employees uh, about how machinery work, uh, and that training often was considered to be like firm-specific. So employees will take over uh, and uh, assume, see the need to take greater responsibility for their own employability. So it's an individual individualization of car- career strategies and focus on getting uh, training themselves, uh, focus on uh, strategies that will ensure that they are able to change employers if they have to. And so basically, the, the transformations we're observing in job stability may be also driven by a change in attitude among workers in reaction to those broader transformations that we're observing. Um, so, so some people will, will say, for example, oh, mi- millennials are uh, a generation of job hoppers, um, and it may or may not be true. Um, it, it depends on how you see it, but if it's true, it's important to remember that it happens in a certain context. Uh, not only are younger generations having different attitudes towards their career, uh, but that also happens in reaction to certain transformations about what kind of jobs are available, what kind of employers uh, are The way the there. workforce is organized. Exactly. The, you know, the, the structure and the nature of work. But obviously, I'm not answering that question directly in, the, in, in, in my dissertation. Uh, I, I have some future work, uh, so some ongoing work, uh, trying to tackle that question. All right. So let's. Uh, I'm I'm really eager to know what your findings were in the European context. And so in your second chapter, you're comparing the. You're doing a comparative analysis. You're looking at Germany and the UK. And you're looking at these because they're two different market economies um, and they could they could potentially tell us something um, different because they're working within different laws, different uh, circumstances. So tell us about that. Tell us about your second chapter and what you found there. Yeah. Um, so so I got into that question because um, b- because I think most people would agree that the German economy works very differently from the or quite differently uh, from the U.S. economy or the Canadian economy or the U.K. Uh, at different levels. Um, For the benefit of our uh, North American listeners, can we maybe just at a high level address why? Yeah, and so one specific uh, way in which it's, it, it stands out uh, is that um, there is a, a, a very large share of young adults who go through apprenticeships. That are very very structured. Some 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 academics have said that you can compare the German skill machine with uh, the low skill UK manufacturing sector, for example. So if you think of what in your mind is the representation of a manufacturing plant, um, it's probably a conveyor belt or some other form, uh, so something similar, uh, with workers placed next to it. And uh, one worker does a very minute task, very specific, uh, bolting something, and the other one does some other very specific thing as well. Uh, and it's very monotonous, very routine. Uh, and it's also very, uh, not very, but to, to, to some degree, it's uh, it, the skill level that is required uh, is not extremely high. 
what is important is you know um, being uh, constant uh, and reliable uh, and knowing how to uh, to follow the so being able to follow the pace uh, of the conveyor belt, for example. Um, so otherwise known as high risk for automation. Exactly that too, that too, um, and. In Germany, with the apprenticeship, the apprenticeship system, uh, it's based still, still to a much larger extent than in uh, Canada, the UK, or the US, uh, on a craft system or on a more, uh, um, a more, uh, a less routinized and less descaled approach to manufacturing, um, and so there's a greater level of flexibility in production. Uh, and there's a greater importance of um, craft occupations or of, of, of occupational skills in general, in, 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 general uh, in the manufacturing sector, but outside of the manufacturing sector uh, as well. Um, and so the, 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 the training system and the education system focuses on developing high skill uh, in jobs that in other countries uh, uh, can be fairly low skilled because of the way the work is organized. So just to clarify, this is let's say in the Canadian context, having something, let's say, equivalent to a red skilled trade, but for in our economy in Canada would be uh, like semi-skilled work. So like working, let's say, in an auto manufacturing plant, which here is unregulated, but there, there's a structural barrier. Yeah, it's much more regulated as well. Uh, so many professions that here are quite unregulated uh, will be much more regulated in terms of who can enter the profession, with what credentials, etc. That That is an important point. And the other important uh, difference uh, between many uh, what we call continental European countries, because they're on the continent, so Germany and the countries that are next to it, so like France, Belgium, Austria, Italy, is that they tend to have much stronger employment protection legislation. legislation. So legislated uh, protections against dismissals. In the US, Canada, and the UK, these have always been low. There's always been uh, a pretty low level of legislated protections against involuntary job loss. Uh, this is where trade unions played a role uh, in, in Canada, in the UK, in the US. Uh, so, so workers who are co covered by a collective agreement and have a, new, a union uh, tend to be protected uh, to a much larger extent than non-unionized workers uh, against job loss. In, in, in many continental European countries, that, that role is attributed to the law rather than to uh, only to the unions. Uh, so by law, it's much harder to dismiss a worker uh, in Germany. So basically, uh, knowing th those important differences, and there are a few others, uh, the financial system works very differently, uh, or at least the way companies are funded or financed, uh, and uh, the corporate governance system has been for quite a bit of time fairly different in Germany than, than it's been uh, in, in the UK, for example. So um, knowing that there are all those differences, is there a reason to believe that uh, we would see a different trend in job stability? So, and more specifically, what I, what I wanted to look at is the fact that most governments in Western Europe, uh, in North America, um, have uh, put forward the idea that uh, there's a need for greater flexibility. And we know that like in the UK, for example, and in the US, there has been a, su a successful push towards that. The unionization rate in those countries has decreased. And as I said, it's been the source of job security for many workers. In Germany, change has been quite different. First, because job security doesn't only depend on unions, but also unions have remained stronger in Germany than in, uh, in the UK, for example. So if you talk to young Europeans now, you'll know, however, that a lot of them go through cycles of temporary work. 
many young European workers experience a high level of instability. And those who manage to get a permanent job, on the other hand, uh, benefit from a high level of job security still to this day. Uh, if you look at, if you quantify how strict job protection legislations are uh, in Germany for permanent workers, the number is very stable. Um, so still to this day, if you are a permanent worker covered by these legislations, then uh, you'll still benefit from a high level of job security. But there's been growing room for employers to um, hire workers under different contracts uh, that are not exactly covered by this legislation. Instead of what we're expecting in the UK, uh, where sectors uh, like the manufacturing sector or sectors that used to be highly unionized and are not anymore and used to benefit from a high level of job stability, lifetime jobs, instead of having a, expecting a general shift away from stable jobs, as we are in the case of the UK, for example, in Germany, the hypothesis was that um, Germany may be experiencing either very little change because a lot of the institutions, a lot of so the training institutions and uh, job protection legislation, uh, unions, collective bargaining system remain fairly stable with, with, you know, without overstating it. So maybe there has been very little to no change in Germany. And that's what some people have been arguing. But that sounds oddly familiar with the situation in Canada where people were saying, oh, there's been very little change. Uh, so maybe there's also been some change. But, but if there's been change, the hypothesis is that we might see a polarization of job stability. So an increase in job instability among certain groups of workers and no change among another group of workers. So that's what I was trying to, um, to measure in, in that paper. One thing that I wanted to circle back on, especially when it comes to comparing and contrasting the effect on unions and job stability in North America versus the U.S. is the culture of unions, right? So in North America, and this is controversial, not everybody would agree with this, but a lot of people would acknowledge that the relationship between union and firm is adversarial. And what they're trying to protect here is wages and benefits for tenured workers. And this is, let's say, particularly apparent in the auto sector, where in Canada here, unfortunately, we have had a lot of like big plant closures because the wage cost is not sustainable versus other jurisdictions uh, and, and subject to competitive forces. Whereas it's well known that in Germany and, and a lot of Eastern Europe, the culture of unions is more collaborative with management where they might work with the firm to say, hey, what is the total compensation cost that we need to be at? in order to protect jobs. So they're more interested in protecting people's jobs versus protecting the wage and benefits. And that, in my mind, must surely have an effect on employment stability. Yeah, so you, you, you can call it culture, but the industrial relations systems are definitely very different in Germany and in the UK. And that's one source of difference in the sense that in Germany, unions have been embedded in firm governance for a much longer amount of time. Uh, for many, many different reasons. This hasn't been seen in the UK, for example. Yeah, in the UK, um, unions have mostly bargained at the firm level. So unionization in the UK, in the US, and Canada mostly happens at the firm level. That's a bargaining unit. In Germany, it's slightly different uh, to the extent that for a long time, and still to this day, but now with more and more derogations, uh, collective bargaining happens at the industry level. So different firms in the same sector will compete a bit less against each other in terms of um, poaching workers one from another because wages are pretty even across a given industry. Labor cost is not one of the bigger deciders of competitive advantage. 
at the national level, at least, two firms in the U.S., one that is unionized and one that is not. So, so the, the unionized firm may, may feel that they are at a disadvantage because uh, they have to pay higher wages. Whereas uh, in Germany, in a given industry, uh, two firms in the same industry will have uh, very similar wage rates. Um, so, so th you know, that's one aspect of the question. Another thing, uh, another feature of the, 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 um, the German industrial relations system is that uh, workers are involved in firm governance. So they have seats on uh, work councils. Uh, and so they have a say to much greater extent than workers in the UK and in, in Canada and the US uh, in how companies operate. Uh, so this is how they're able to often come, uh, enter into agreement with employers uh, and provide a level of flexibility that is similar to uh, the, the flexibility that would be achieved through dismissals, but by diminishing the work hours of the employees uh, and the wages as well. Um, so that's not an option that's easily available in, in North America or in the UK uh, because trade unions don't have this kind of role in firm governance. Uh, it's much more adversarial because uh, there's less room also for uh, unions to uh, participate in firm governance. So to link it back to the kind of the, the polarization hypothesis, this kind of industrial relation system mostly exists in the manufacturing sector. But um, in Germany, like in other economies, the service sector has grown. Um, and the manufacturing sector did also undergo a, a fair amount of change. So while there's a persistence of this kind of industrial relation system in certain part of the German economy, in large manufacturing firms uh, who are export-oriented, uh, in other parts of the German economy, uh, you don't see those kind of institutions. Uh, so trade unions are much weaker in the service sector. Uh, apprenticeships are much less developed. So basically, what my findings show is that at the aggregate level, there's been a polarization in job tenure. So an, increase, an increasing share of workers have short-term jobs, while a persistently high share of workers have long-term jobs. So what's interesting is that in the UK, in the same study, I found an increase in, in, in short-term jobs of a similar magnitude. Uh, so in, let's say in jobs that last for five years or less, of a similar magnitude uh, in terms of, of, of um, percentage point change than in Germany. So a similar increase in the share of short-term jobs in Germany uh, and in the UK. But the difference is that in the UK, the increase in short-term jobs uh, is a result of a shift away from long-term jobs. Um, whereas in Germany, long-term jobs, so 20 or more years, the share of, uh, the share of workers who held jobs for that duration uh, remain fairly stable. And it's the middle of the distribution. So jobs that lasted for 10 to 20 years, the share of workers who hold these kind of jobs decreased over time. Uh, so that's why we observe a polarization. And so the next question was, is there any group difference? So what kind of workers are more likely to experience an increase in the probability of short-term employment? A lot of people would say it's, it's younger workers. Uh, so younger workers probably have uh, less stable careers. And the data shows that. Uh, it's uh, a high proportion of older men have uh, jobs that last for 20 years or more, and that's been fairly stable uh, to this day. Job stability for younger workers shifted uh, towards less stable jobs. Um, interestingly, what I also find is that workers in uh, industrial sectors, so in manufacturing, uh, utilities, et cetera, we see very little change in tenure distribution. Uh, and it's workers working in the service sector, especially lo the low-skill service sector, who uh, see a shift towards short-term jobs.
there's some sectors driving the change in Germany uh, to an extent that we don't see in the UK. And that's because uh, of the persistence of the apprenticeship system, of uh, strong unions and union governance, uh, union involvement from governance uh, that we see in Germany. Uh, whereas in the UK, um, unions lost a lot of their power uh, in sectors where they offered a high level of job stability. Okay, I think that's a perfect transition to your next, your final article, your final standalone article. So you said you focus a little bit of on change over time on this, but it's not the focus of this chapter. Um, as I understood you saying, this is more a chapter about the measures of um, lifetime work, correct? Yeah. Okay. The question was really to ask, how likely is it, to, was it in the post-war economy that workers actually held lifetime jobs? And... So the idea is that even though the literature tends to suggest or to conflate stable jobs with lifetime jobs in many cases, um, for example, you'll have studies asking, are jobs for life disappearing? But then they will measure it by looking at the share of workers with more than five years of tenure. Five years is not a lifetime job. Uh, so so it's not that those studies are bad. Uh, they provided really important results about changes in job stability. Um, but in the motivations uh, behind those studies, often one of them is asking, are we shifting away from a uh, job for life model where what's measured is really, are we uh, seeing a decrease in the stability of jobs? And these are two related things, but measuring change in the stability of jobs uh, doesn't directly provide evidence on whether jobs in the post-war labor market, so after World War II, between 45, uh, 1945 and 1975, were actually lifetime jobs. So that's really what I wanted to measure. Um, and as I said, you know, in Germany, for example, you have temporary workers and then permanent workers who are covered by employment protection legislation. Uh, and so, so we know that they, have, they tend to have very stable jobs. Uh, in the UK, unionized workplaces also offered similar levels of job security. Um, but no one really tried to measure uh, how stable those, those jobs were, uh, or more specifically, whether workers who work in those jobs uh, did experience separations or not, and the extent to which workers who worked in settings that offered a high level of secur job security actually spent their, they hold their whole career with the same employer. So, so it, m one of the reasons I think is just like uh, an omission of that specific question, but part of it is also a data uh, limitation issue. Uh, how, how, how do you know that? How, how can you know whether workers have worked for a single employer for their whole career? It's less likely that the data will exist. So one thing you'll need is, uh, for example, a survey asking uh, workers who are about to retire to describe their career history. And then uh, identify the proportion of those workers who uh, report uh, that they held a single job for most of their career. But the data is fairly rare. So there's one data set in the UK that has that. Uh, there are two data sets that have that component. Um, and one of them really covers cohorts that were born in the post-war post labor market. Um, in other countries, the, so in Canada, for example, we don't have that kind of data. In many European countries, that, that kind of data doesn't exist. Um, but also, um, in the UK, the survey in question that I'm referring to, the British Household Panel Survey, is, it's a longitudinal survey. And on one of the years, they asked the respondents uh, to describe their career history. But they didn't ask those questions again. So we, can, we cannot really compare, uh, measure change over time. Uh, so we can't really answer the question, uh, have lifetime, lifetime jobs disappeared, even if we're able to conclude that uh, a certain share of workers had lifetime jobs. 
So the, the goal of that paper was twofold. First, to develop a way to measure lifetime jobs that can be used in countries like Canada, but also being able to measure change over time in how likely it was that workers held lifetime jobs. So that's why it's more of a measurement paper. And you kind of told us what you found already uh, at the beginning, but maybe you want to just quickly reiterate. Yeah, so I said, uh, uh, so, so, so one of the, the, the interesting findings is that I found that, that 7% of men and 20% of women held a lifetime job, which means that uh, almost no woman held a lifetime job uh, among women born between 1947 and 1952 in the UK, uh, and 80% of men never held a lifetime job. Um, and one thing that I should specify is that 95% of women and 99% of men have had a job. So, so it's, not, you know, it's not that a lot of people never worked and that's why they never achieved lifetime employment. Uh, you know, m- most people had a job in their lives. Um, but for most people, uh, that job didn't turn out to be a lifetime job. Um, the other part of the findings are, uh, I don't want to go t- into too much details about the method, but um, one of the innovations that I have is instead of using longitudinal data especially retrospective data, asking people, can you describe on each of the years you were on the liberal market uh, what kind of job you held and you know how long it had lasted? So basically the British household panel survey that I referred to, instead of using that kind of data that is fairly hard to collect and that is not often collected, I used a more common source of data that is cross-sectional. So it doesn't follow individuals, but um, it's possible focusing on certain cohorts to estimate the share of given cohort members who reached a lifetime job uh, using some basic assumptions about the representativeness of uh, annual samples. So I'm, I'm using an annual data set that doesn't follow individual workers, but that on every year collects data on a sample of the population that is representative of the overall population. So from year to year, we can follow the same cohort, even if it's not the same individuals. It's individuals who are part of the same cohort. And then by making certain assumptions, identify those who just reached 30 years uh, and add them to those who had already reached 30 years the year before uh, to arrive to a certain total of people, uh, of workers who uh, eventually managed to reach 30 years in a given birth cohort over the course of 20 years between 45 and 64 years old. Um, that sounds definitely innovative in, indeed, right? Because, I mean, you can't go back and collect the longitudinal data now. And, uh, like, it, it, it still gives you, you're right, that, that, you know, it's not the same person necessarily. But if we're assuming that the, the data are representative to begin with, it can still tell us a really interesting story. I, I just have a question for you, though. Did you do this cross-sectional analysis in UK, Germany, and Canada? So I, I only produce results for the UK. Uh, And the reason is that I had that other survey. There were actually two surveys, but I had two surveys that I was able to use to validate my results. So since it's a new method, I wanted to have an alternative data source against which I could benchmark my my estimates. uh, And I found that the estimates were fairly similar. So my method, even if it makes certain assumptions using data that is not perfect, so so the estimates are pretty similar across data sources that are fairly different. Um, And so now, basically, the methodological conclusion is that uh, this method could be used in other countries that don't have those retrospective surveys that are longitudinal, uh, but it do have similar cross-sectional data, um, like Canada, like, to a certain extent, the U.S., and like a lot of other European countries. So the goal is that, I mean, on my end, to use that method uh, to understand uh, what's happening in Canada, but other researchers in other countries could use it for their own countries as well. That's really interesting. Okay, so this is a perfect transition for us into the method section, since it seems like your third article 
was really about the method rather than the result in the end, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think it was both. To answer the question, I think I needed a methodological innovation, um, but the substantive question is still fairly important, right? Like finding that that most people never had a lifetime job. Yeah, certainly answering that question required uh, required a new method. But the other part of that paper uh, also looked at change over time in the share of workers who held a lifetime job. Uh, and that was possible because now with the new method, it became possible to compare cohorts over time, whereas using the old uh, surveys that were collected uh, irregularly and with samples that are not necessarily comparable, it was hard to look at change over time. So the final segment of that paper combines that method with uh, another method that I already referred to, which is the decomposition method, um, to estimate change over time in the share of workers who hold lifetime jobs. Uh, so now comparing cohorts together. So comparing the 1947 to uh, 1952 birth cohorts with uh, cohorts who were born uh, more recently. And look if in younger cohorts, the share of workers who held the lifetime jobs decreased. Again, and that's the decomposition part, holding constant the characteristics of workers to make sure that population aging and the increase in the educational attainment of the workforce uh, didn't drive the trends. So the interesting results are that the share of workers who hold a lifetime job has been fairly stable at a low level for men and for women as well. Some of the results is partial because younger cohorts are still young, so they, they, they haven't reached 64 years old yet. Uh, so we can only have partial uh, results for those cohorts. But it seems like even in, in cohorts that were born in the 60s, uh, the share of, of workers who reach a lifetime job is still fairly stable. What's interesting is that workers who hold long-term jobs, so a long-term job, so those who reach 20 or more years of tenure, uh, that proportion has decreased by uh, about 10 percentage points. One hypothesis I have, and that's not verified in the paper, is that um, those lifetime jobs were not necessarily jobs in the manufacturing sector, but maybe more in the public sector. And in the public sector, you know, there's been important changes in the UK and in other countries in, in you know, the level of job security provided by the public sector, but there may still be a core segment of jobs in the public sector that offer a high level of job security uh, and offer lifetime employment. Uh, even if manufacturing uh, for, for some time was characterized by like bureaucratic employment practices and high levels of unionization, the manufacturing, the manufacturing sector always had a certain level of volatility. And so because of competition and some firms closing even temporarily, um, my findings kind of require uh, you know, further investigation, but, but I think it's still interesting to, to see that everybody's talking about the decreasing importance of job for life. And what I'm finding is that they were not that important, or at least they, most workers never held a lifetime job, but also that the share of workers who hold a lifetime job has been pretty stable. I think it points at new ways to look at what's been happening. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you, you've continued to come back to, right, is what are, the, what are the population factors, right? What happens when we look at the characteristics of the workers? Um, and what happens when we look at different countries and different conditions? What happens when we look at different economies, different laws? Um, all of these different methods of looking at employment give us completely different results, correct? Yeah. Okay, great. So I think uh, let's move to your method section. Um, and talk a little bit about, so I know you're a statistician, um, but... I, I wouldn't call myself a statistician, but I, I use quantitative methods. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, fair enough. Um, so you, you're a quantitative researcher, um, but you use statistics in all three of your papers, correct? Yes. Yeah. That's your major uh, method. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, do you want to give us a little bit of an elaboration on that? Um, or do you want to skip straight to the interesting measures that you use in your statistics? I think I hinted at the decomposition method. That is an important part of my methodology, um, but it relies on on, um, on a regression analysis. So basically, uh, a regression allows uh, for multivariate analysis. And what I do is I have change over time as one of my independent variables. And then in the regression, I also add direct measures of the other factors. So age, education of the worker, uh, the unemployment rate uh, for the study in Canada, and the marital status of workers, for example. And so what it, what it does is that in the most basic model, you'll have only the, the time variable in the model. And so that provides an estimate of uh, change over time. And adding the other variables allows you to, to, to account for the fact that change over time captures a bunch of factors, including flexibilization, but in this case, Time is also correlated with, or also happens in parallel to aging. So more recent years are years where the average age is higher. So by introducing age, for example, in regression, um, it allows to control for population aging and have an effect of time that is net of population aging. So that's what happens in a regression framework and all the other variables work in a similar way. So the results that are presented are those coefficients for change over time in models that add different variables. And so the change in the coefficient of the time variable uh, provides an indication of the role. Um, so it, it allows to quantify the impact of other factors. Let's say there's no change over time, right? Over the whole period in Canada, for example, between 1976 to 2015, let's say there's an estimate of zero change over time. And then controlling for age, um, so adding age in the model in addition to the time variable, the coefficient for change over time shows a decrease by five percentage points in the share of workers who will hold a lifetime job, for example. So the difference between the two coefficients shows you the composition effect of age, so you, shows you the impact that age had on the trend. So the estimates once controlling for age uh, is negative by five percentage points compared to zero, which means that um, population aging was driving an increase of five percentage points in the share of workers who held a lifetime job. So that's kind of the intuition between the decomposition method, uh, is that it allows to quantify the role of different factors and to, to obtain net estimate of change over time that is not correlated with those factors. And are you the first one to be using this decomposition method? No, it's a, it's a widely used uh, method, um, but it's neat uh, to the extent that it allows to answer the, the question that I had. Okay, so other than that, then, is there, are there any other specific methodologies or methods that you want to point us to, or is there any more elaboration that you want to give us about the methods that you've used? Beyond what I've already said, I think um, my approaches are, are fairly standard. Uh, so it's really about uh, leveraging uh, existing methods to answer uh, new questions or to have a different take on, on, um, on previous findings that we're using similar methods. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's the, the new methodology that I developed in the last paper. Uh, but I think I've said, uh, I've said quite a bit about it already. Yeah, we've already talked about the innovative aspect of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to having that um, methodology being used in the Canada case, um, specifically the Canada case. I mean, I'm really interested in employment in Canada, but obviously in the U.S. and elsewhere as well. 
So one of the questions that I have for you is you gave us uh, a lot of insight in the Canadian context in terms of the nature of work and the way that it's impacted by gender and especially by women who are holding on to their jobs after maternity leave. Um, and so I'm wondering, uh, did you find anything similar in the UK Germany context or can you give us the gendered implications there or is there anything that you found? Yeah, so the pattern that, that I observed in Canada is a pattern that um, a paper authored by my co-author for the Canada paper, Matissa Hollister, um, wrote about, so she has a previous paper uh, about the trends in the US. And that is where she identified that increase in job stability for women uh, happening in parallel with a decrease in job stability for men. And she called that uh, masked instability. So one question for Canada was, can we observe that masked instability as well in Canada? And for the Germany and UK paper, we, ha we had the same question because we were expecting, so in both countries, women's labor force participation increased over the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s. But what we know is that family policies in Germany and also what we call the regime around uh, women's employment is fairly different. There's a lot of research on that. And what I wanted to do is ask whether that leads to a different pattern of change among women in Germany compared to the UK. Um, so, so the UK is often bundled with the US and Canada as a liberal market economy. So a lot of similar features. And uh, that includes an increase in women's labor force participation uh, over the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, in the three countries. So, so basically, the expectation was that a masked instability pattern would be found uh, in the UK. And that is indeed what we found. So as I said, job stability decreased for men in the UK. It was a shift in the whole distribution towards less stable jobs. But for women, it was an increase in job stability and a shift, an overall shift towards more stable jobs among women. Um, that pretty much fits the expectation of the masked instability hypothesis uh, that mothers have uh, more stable employment uh, because they're less likely to leave their jobs after childbirth. Um, so in Germany, things happen a bit differently at the level of policy uh, making. So traditionally, uh, Germany is presented as a, a male breadwinner model. So where men are expected to hold a full-time job and be the main provider for the family uh, in terms of you know, employment income. And the welfare state is structured in such a way uh, as to facilitate that. And, and that, that, that's not unique to Germany uh, in you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but it persisted for a longer amount of time in Germany. So one way that this is visible is uh, there's a set of welfare state policies that support job stability among men. So all, all, all the things I mentioned already. So employment protection legislation in the manufacturing sector with strong unions, etc. And traditionally, women have been uh, working in... Um, specific sectors for, for spe in specific occupations uh, that were not covered by the same protections. We're talking again about those almost trade-like, semi-skilled work uh, that we discussed earlier, right? For, for men or...? Yeah, like yeah. What, I, what I'm getting from that, I just want to make sure I understand, is that because those occupations are traditionally male-dominated, whereas the types of employment in service sector economies in the OECD countries you know, I don't want to use the term, but we'll say pink collar jobs yeah. are, are not covered under those types of uh, like structural barrier. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, so pink color is is one term that that's widely used. So that would describe this pretty accurately. And and so we we have uh, seg- what we call gender occupational segregation. So so uh, a difference in the occupations held by men and women uh, that's visible across OECD countries. But in Germany, uh, the impact may have been stronger to the extent that. Uh, women were less likely to enter the apprenticeship system and then enter the manufacturing sector that had all those benefits in terms of job stability. And uh, because of also the norms around who's the breadwinner, so a male breadwinner regime, and, and a lot of other you know institutional incentives, women's labor force participation remained fairly low in Germany for, a little, uh, for, for some time. Well, you would say it lagged behind... Let's yeah. North American so in the 1980s trends. and 1990s, the women's uh, labor force participation uh, lagged behind uh, the U.S., uh, Canada, uh, for example, uh, and the U.K. So up to a point where the German government tried to increase the uh, employment rate uh, among women and especially among mothers. Uh, but that that was done in a specific way where around the end of the 1990s and the beginning of the 2000s, there were a series of uh, labor market reforms that aimed at facilitating job creation by facilitating the use by employer of temporary contracts, for example, but also other types of work contracts that are often called mini jobs, um, which means those jobs don't require employers and employees to pay certain social insurance amounts that are fairly high in Germany across all jobs, much higher than what we have here with the CPP, for example. And um, that provide a much uh, lower level of job security. And a high share of women entered employment through those contracts that are much less secure. Um, so, so what's interesting in the results is that in contrast with Canada, the UK and the US, in Germany, uh, the increase in women's labor force participation uh, was not followed by a strong increase in their job stability. So, I mean, what we're observing is basically a polarization of job stability among women, just as we're observing among men. So the trend for women is fairly similar to the trend for men in Germany, uh, with an increase in uh, short-term jobs among women and a very slight increase in long-term jobs. It seems like for some women, we see, we're seeing an increase in job stability, um, but much less than what we're finding in the UK. And... It seems that in contrast with what we're finding in the UK, women are experiencing the impact of flexibilization the same way as men are. As uh, women increase their participation to the labor market, they do it by being more and more likely to work in non-standard or so in temporary part-time contracts and mini jobs. Uh, in, while in the UK, part-time work among women, for example, has decreased as their labor force participation increased. Um, and uh, that seems to be associated with an increase in the share of women who hold less stable jobs. Um, so that shows you the importance of you know, the, the, the culture around women's participation to the labor market after they become mothers uh, and the impact of policy. So I mentioned one policy, uh, but another important policy is the, the maternal leave policy, which in Germany favors long leaves that allow part-time work during part of the leave. So um, those long leaves have been associated with a lower uh, employment rate among women. Um, So in countries that implemented them, uh, whereas shorter leaves uh, tend to be associated with a greater rate of return to the previous employer and so so, so arguably more job stability uh, among mothers. Uh, And by short leave, I mean something uh, between three and uh, nine months. The type of leaves that are similar to what we had in Canada until the extension of the leave uh, available to mothers uh, now that is a bit longer than, than um, that, that recently increased. 
Um, okay, so I, I guess in that case, we can move on then to uh, the conversations that you're contributing to. So in setting up this puzzle for us, you've already addressed those conversations, but but maybe if you want to reframe it or if there's anything that you want to add to the, the kind of conversations that your dissertation or your research is specifically addressing, um, and even if you're not you know, st- drawing from that literature, um, what is the literature that you hope to influence? So I think one of the conversations I, I wish to contribute to with this research is um, the, the whole conversation around what career model are uh, people today uh, ascribing to, and more specifically, younger uh, younger workers uh, like like millennials who are often you know uh, contrasted with other generations as being job hoppers, etc. And so I think those, the results I show uh, contribute to thinking about what's what's really the difference between generations. You know, my results are not based on subjective questions about the career expectation of younger generations, but it still it provides a more detailed look at what kind of change we've been observing. And one way I think I contribute to the conversation about like you know millennials versus other generations uh, is some of the findings, especially in Canada, that I have for older workers that show that older workers also have uh, a greater level of uh, instability in their careers uh, today. So uh, the transformation we're seeing is you know. Younger workers are experiencing uh, greater levels of instability uh, because they stay with the same employer for a shorter amount of time and they're more likely to experience a separation. Uh, But older workers are also slightly more likely to experience a separation today. So as I said, the increase in instability uh, and job instability in Canada started in the 1990s when the millennials were not on the labor market yet. Um, And so that instability translated into a lower rate of tenure accumulation. So, so older workers today uh, have accumulated quite a lo- lower level of, of, uh, of seniority than uh, their, their counterparts back in the 70s. Uh, so it's not only the millennials that are job hopping and that's driving the whole change. Older workers are also uh, showing very different career trajectories. The other conversation I'm not directly part of, but it's quite an interesting one, is in this context of greater instability and a change in the way workers and employers see their mutual commitment towards each other, it's not true that employers don't want to retain their workers. Uh, and especially to, you know, in, in recent years with the labor market that's heating up, employee retention, especially talent retention, is of great concern for, for many employers. So it's not true that employers simply want to have a fully flexible workforce and that they don't really want to retain any of their workers. But the arrangements that are currently in place in many firms don't necessarily incentivize workers to stay. So I refer to the boundaryless career model where more and more employees see it as valuable to change firms as a way to, pro- to, to progress in their career. Um, and employers are not necessarily willing or incentivized to put in place the same kind of arrangements that incentivize uh, staying with a given firm. So providing training and job security and certain forms of compensation that incentivize workers to stay. So how are employers convincing employees to stay? What are they providing to employees to make sure that that the employees that they want to retain stay with them? Also, I just want to add another thing as well is that, you know, you're kind of pointing us into a direction of rethinking the notion of precarity as well, right? And that, you know, what you're saying might be really controversial to some people. Uh, So I just kind of want to give you the chance to respond to people who might criticize what you're saying as, you know, dismissing precarity as a structural issue and putting it more back in the will of the the worker. I I don't think I'm contradicting the precarious work literature and the literature that identifies an increase in precarity. 
I'm contributing to it in a slightly different way where instead of focusing on uh, certain types of contracts, as I said, my research does focus on temporary work to some extent, over so the Germany paper especially, um, but, but it's not my only focus. And the reason is that what I want to show is it's not only people who work as self-employed contractors or on temporary contracts or doing seasonal work uh, that are impacted by the transformations uh, that I referred to at the beginning of this, uh, this, this discussion. It's also people who hold permanent contracts who may also be experiencing a change in their employer practices. So the goal was just to address the question from a different angle and say, what's happening to those permanent workers that we're thinking were having a lifetime job Maybe most of them did not, uh, and that we're maybe focusing on to a lesser extent when we're focusing only on certain types of employment relationships as defined by the employment contracts, so temporary, etc. But I get that question a lot. And yeah, definitely the goal is to contribute to the debate in a different way um, and not to say that they're wrong. Quite the contrary, I think my findings support that literature in the sense that it shows that the increase in precariousness and insecurity in, f in the formal arrangements that's been observed since the 1980s and 90s in the literature has translated into less stable careers. Right. Okay. I think that's like a good segue for us to jump into the practical outcomes of your research as well, right? So you've talked about the, the conversations that, um, you know, you're contributing to outside of those original puzzle conversations that you set up for us at the beginning and throughout um, the research and then and and then you've taken it further to tell tell us more about the current and and you know um imminence conversations that are happening around the conversations of employment precarity and things alike um but i'm wondering in terms of your specific dissertation and the research that you've you've done here are there practical outcomes? And I guess you pointed a little bit to this, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the innovative methodologies that you used in your, in your third article. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to reiterate that or other practical outcomes that you hope to have with this research. So I think one practical outcome that is, I guess, especially relevant for academics, but you may hear of that debate beyond academic settings, is how do you reconcile the fact that on an aggregate level, indicators show that the labor market, especially in the US, but also to a certain extent in Canada, is less dynamic. People are overall at the aggregate level are changing jobs less often. So that's an aggregate indicator that's often used as an indicator of how dynamic the economy is with and using the decomposition methods that I talked about, the fact that individually everybody feels that they uh, are facing a greater level of insecurity um, and that seems to translate for for men at least in greater instability in their careers so it should or i hope it leads people who look at change over time and uh, at doing some indicator research to balance looking at aggregate indicators and what they mean as an indicator of economic performance with um, disaggregated indicators for different subgroups and what they mean for certain subgroups of people uh, who may be experiencing the reverse of what the aggregate trend suggests. Um, but that's maybe more of an academic practical point. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I, I, I mean, yes, I'm an academic, but also here at InSearch, what we're trying to do is bridge academic work outside of academia itself, right? And I think that what you're saying, um, all of the research that you've, you've, all these conversations that we've been having today 
are relevant, right, in this, this reconciliation of objective data versus this individual kind of um, societal sentiment of precarity, it's important for the general public to be able to be directed to this kind of research, to think more, um, to think more practically about, you know, what are the things, what are the, the uh, impacts of precarious work and what are the things that, what are the measures that researchers are using, right? And just the transparency of that kind of research is something that translates to publics as well, at least from, from where I stand. And, and I think if I didn't have that perspective, then, then I, I wouldn't have wanted to do this, this podcast, right? So Yeah, I guess it's kind of um, one case of how to discuss data that might look simple how stable is a job measured by a very simple variable being a case of actually way more is going on uh, behind that that simple measure um, and it's totally fair and necessary to kind of uh, dig into what's actually happening um, and question the data uh, yeah absolutely so to wrap this up i like to circle back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about some of the future research that might result from this inquiry. Uh, can you give us a bit of a sneak peek about what you might be working on in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, one, one thing that you kind of asked me, but you never really asked me directly is, so what? Like, does it matter that jobs are less stable? And um, like, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe people are, I mean, I, I think most people say no, uh, it does matter, but maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe people who have a boundaryless career, as I said, or people who change jobs often are doing just fine. Maybe employees adapted to the new context, employers are after high-performing employees who change jobs all the time, and that's just fine. But maybe employers didn't fully adapt. Maybe employers are seeking greater flexibility, but um, they're not ready to hire somebody who experienced the impact of that flexibility. So when employers hire, they look for signals, right? So they take a resume um, and other information that they may gather. Uh, today, it's more and more and more with uh, different softwares and technologies and products that are developed uh, to provide information about uh, applicants. But one thing that they may look at is uh, whether the person is a job hopper or not, uh, whether the person had a single job uh, in their first 10 years on the labor market or whether they changed jobs every two years. And that may send very different signals. So in a new project that I have with Matissa Hollister uh, uh, at Dizotel, uh, Faculty of Management at McGill and Nicole Denier at the University of Alberta, um, we're conducting an experimental study. Basically, what's the consequence of instability in somebody's career on their hiring prospect? So it's quite different from, from my dissertation work uh, because we, we're not using uh, survey data like in my dissertation papers. Instead, we're collecting our own data. And it's experimental data where uh, we're conducting a resume audit study. Um, and those studies have often been used trying to identify uh, instances of discrimination. So, for example, you'll send two resumes, one of them mentioning involvement in um, you know, African-American Students Association or uh, in a community organization supporting LGBTQ people. And as a signal of somebody's you know, uh, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation or any, any, any characteristic that somebody may be discriminated against. Um, and so, so these studies have been fairly useful at showing employers' so-called preferences for different applicants or reaction to those, those signals. Uh, and that's been used to show uh, the extent of uh, discrimination in the hiring process uh, in many countries. 
So we're using that same approach, but our signal for which we're trying to test is job hopping. So we're sending resumes to US employers um, and those resumes are for, and that's kind of a challenge, but it's quite interesting, but um, we're building resumes of people who have eight years on the labor market and they're applying for senior positions. And they had some kind of perfect career or a no flaws career to the extent that they never had a gap in their employment since they ended their, their bachelor degree. So everybody has a fairly stable employment, but their jobs or their job history is different. So in some of the resumes, we show a very loyal employee who never changed jobs since they started their first job after school. And in other resumes, we go all the other way where we're showing somebody who had a different job every two years in their first eight years on the labor market um, in five different industries. So two tech jobs or five, so five different occupations and we're mixing that with industry and geography. So two type of tech workers and then three type of workers in more traditional fields like HR, finance and marketing. And we're looking at whether uh, job hoppers are experiencing lower callback rates or higher, maybe, um, across those industries uh, to know, you know, what happens when somebody who had a high level of job instability in their early work history is applying for a senior position. Um, so we're still collecting the data. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to risk uh, preliminary results uh, here on the record, um, but, but so far it's been fairly interesting. Uh, to see how that's going and just collecting that new data about you know how employers react to the resumes we're sending um, i think candidates are going to be very interested to see the results of that research hopefully uh, we'll close data collection soon uh, and i'll be able to share that uh, at a later well you know what uh when that's uh when that's ready to see the light of day we'll uh, love to have you back on the podcast thank you very much for uh for joining us today Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I, that sounds like such interesting research, and I I want to invite you back to come here with your with your colleagues also, uh, you know, to recap and and let us know what's going on with this research that you're doing, and also do update us, do let us know about your postdoctoral research uh, as it comes out as well. Um, I don't know if you want to signal any of that work or. Yeah, so I mean, the, my postdoctoral work is going to be quite different um, uh, using a. a uh, so, so, so I'll be looking at how um, intragenerational mobility, so mobility ex people experience throughout their career, is linked to intergenerational mobility. So mobility people experience uh, by looking at the socioeconomic status of their parents versus their socioeconomic status. So how is that association between family background uh, and uh, the, so, so between the background of somebody's family and their own outcomes when they become adult, how does that relate to the level of instability that they may experience uh, and other types of labor market experiences that they face? Um, so linking that kind of mobility story with uh, an intergenerational mobility story. Well, Xavier, I mean, you're doing such interesting work and it's been it's been such a phenomenal conversation from beginning to end. I wish we could keep going on. But I really do. I really want to emphasize that I'm pretty sure that listeners would echo uh, this in saying come back and, and do let us know, you know, as you publish more work. Um, we'll definitely let listeners know uh, as your career goes on and as you publish more work. Uh, the research that you're doing is a pressing topic on everybody's brain, right? Um, and so it's really, really important that you're doing this. So I really want to thank you for, for coming here and talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. And it was really a pleasure to, uh, to, to have discussions and uh, uh, 
uh, following all your questions. Uh, so yeah, it was a really engaging uh, conversation. So thanks for thanks again for having me. Thank you, and we'll uh, see you next time on InSearch. That just about does it for today's episode. Once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us on the InSearch podcast. If you'd like to share your own original research on the program, please reach out to us through the link in the show notes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So tweet us on Twitter at Podcast InSearch or email us at InSearchPodcast at gmail.com. By now, you should know how much we love your feedback. So please don't forget to rate and review us in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Doing so helps us reach a wider audience, share knowledge, and make our world a better place. Consider subscribing so you don't miss the next episode where we look at the field of cell and system biology and talk about the impact of different genes on the social behavior of fruit flies. Until then, stay curious.